0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of
1: iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Holly, I am sure you've seen A League of Their Own. I have. I, I feel like it's safe to say most of our listeners have either seen A League of Their Own or at the very, very least have heard someone say there's no crying in baseball, which is probably its most quoted line.
0: I think you could come to my house and hear it once a week out of my husband's mouth (laughs) if you want to. Just hang out.
1: So this is a 1992 film that tells the story of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League. It is a work of fiction, but it also gets some of the highlights correct. Uh, The league was founded during World War II as many of Major League Baseball's male players had joined the military. But the movie also kind of makes it seem like this was a temporary diversion that ended when the war did. There's a line basically about continuing on with it, but it's not really explored beyond that. In reality, though, these women were athletes. Some of them thought they were starting a lifelong career in professional baseball that would last as long as they were able to play The league itself also went on for years after the war was over. Uh, And this is also a listener request. We've heard about it at various points over the years, but the one that I wrote down was from listener Marav. So by
0: 1943, when this league was founded, baseball was considered both the national pastime in the United States and a man's game. But it didn't start out that way. As the game of baseball was developing in the 19th century, it wasn't just for men and boys. Children played together in neighborhood games, regardless of their gender. Semi-professional and professional leagues included women players and women's teams. And there were also teams at women's colleges, the first being at Vassar in 1866. An all-black women's team called the Dolly Vardens was established in Philadelphia in 1867.
1: During baseball's earlier years, the rules weren't particularly standardized, and there were all kinds of variations in things like the size of the playing field, the size of the ball, and the style of pitching. In a lot of places, everyone played by the same rules, regardless of their gender, although it was not uncommon for women to be expected to play in floor-length dresses, It was also common, though, for girls' baseball teams specifically to have modified rule sets that, for example, made the playing field a little smaller.
0: Barnstorming became an important part of baseball's development starting in 1860. Teams would go on the road to play exhibition matches outside of official league play. By the 1890s, barnstormers included all-women teams known as bloomer girls because of their billowy uniform legs. So they resembled the loose trousers advocated by dress reformers in the 19th century. That's not underwear.
1: Imagining that when they said bloomer girls, it meant playing in their underwear made me giggle a little bit, but that's not what it meant. Over time, one set of baseball rule modifications morphed into its own distinct sport, and that sport was softball. These two games have a lot of similarities. They both involve hitting a thrown ball with a bat and then rounding a set of bases that are arranged as a diamond. But softball uses a larger, softer ball, thus the name. That ball is pitched underhanded rather than overhand or sidearm. The pitching distance is shorter, and the overall field of play is a little smaller. Initially, the game
0: that developed into softball was meant as a baseball alternative that could be played indoors in bad weather. Sometimes it was even called just indoor baseball. It became particularly popular in places where space was limited or where the only place to play was indoors. It was also played outdoors in places with limited space. In the late 19th century, settlement houses in the U.S. started establishing playgrounds and encouraging active play in urban areas, especially among boys. Softball became so closely connected to the settlement movement and to these playgrounds that some sources have erroneously credited Chicago's Hull House with inventing it. And we talked about Hull House and its founder, Jane Addams, in a previous two-parter on the show. Did not invent softball. (laughs)
1: No, did play it a whole lot, though. The overlap between baseball and softball and who was playing it continued until about 1933. That is when the Amateur Softball Association was founded as that sport's governing body, and the name softball was formally adopted for it. And at this point, girls' baseball teams that had been using some kind of modified rule set generally moved over to playing softball. It did not take long
0: before people took for granted that baseball was for boys and softball was for girls, a distinction that persists in a lot of places today. When Little League Baseball was founded in 1939, it was intended for boys, although that did not become an official rule until 1951 in response to Kay Johnston of New York cutting her hair to join a team under the name Tubby. The Tubby Rule remained in place until 1974 after a series of court cases and a ruling by the New Jersey Division on Civil Rights.
1: I guess that's just, it's such a good illustration of how it was assumed to be for boys, so much so that it wasn't even in the rules until after a girl cut her hair to join a team. Like, yeah, it was just taken totally for granted. So by the 1940s, both softball and baseball were well-established in the United States. They were two separate sports, one for men and boys, the other for women and girls. Both had amateur, semi-professional, and professional teams and leagues. And that brings us to World War
0: II. If you remember our October 2019 episode on the Black Sox scandal, during World War I, the idea of Major League Baseball continuing on in spite of the war was deeply controversial. Secretary of War Newton D. Baker issued a work-or-fight order which required any man eligible for the draft to either work in a war-critical industry or join the military. Men who continued to play baseball were viewed as abandoning their patriotic duty. And after the U.S. joined the war, Major League Baseball shortened the 1918 season.
1: As war once again started to spread through Europe in 1939, people feared that the sport of baseball would be disrupted as it had been a couple of decades earlier. These fears escalated after Japan bombed Pearl Harbor, Hawaii in December of 1941, and the United States entered the war at that point. In January of 1942, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner of baseball, wrote to President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to ask, quote, what you have in mind as to whether professional baseball should continue to operate. On
0: January 15, 1942, Roosevelt, who was a fan of baseball, responded with what has become known as the Greenlight Letter. It read in part, quote, I honestly feel that it would be best for the country to keep baseball going. There will be fewer people unemployed and everybody will work longer hours and harder than ever before. And that means that they ought to have a chance for recreation and for taking their minds off their work even more than before.
1: In his letter, the president stressed that players who were of an age to join the military should do so, but that they might be replaced with older players who could still play an exciting game. The president also advocated for more night games so that day shift workers at wartime factories could go.
0: The president ended the green light letter by saying, quote, here is another way of looking at it. If 300 teams use 5,000 or 6,000 players, these players are a definite recreation asset to at least 20 million of their fellow citizens. And that, in my judgment, is thoroughly worthwhile. So
1: even though baseball had the president's seal of approval Roughly half of the regular players in Major League Baseball wound up serving in the military. Some of its best and most popular players were drafted. Of course, that trend also applied to the minor leagues and to other baseball teams as well. So even though the president himself had given the okay for baseball to continue, there were people worried that the sport was going to struggle and that this might even lead to the closure of some of the nation's ballparks.
0: One of these concerned people was Philip K. Wrigley. His father, William Wrigley Jr., had died in 1932, leaving Philip the William Wrigley Jr. Chewing Gum Company, a fortune, and the Chicago Cubs baseball team.
1: We will get to what he did after a quick sponsor break. About 3 million women joined the workforce in the United States between 1940 and 1942. And Philip K. Wrigley thought that maybe this same trend could apply to professional ball. Women's teams could play in ballparks where the home teams were on the road, keeping the sport in the parks going while so many men were away at war. These teams of women could also help boost the national morale and help the war effort with things like fundraising and recruitment drives. Wrigley teamed up with Ken
0: Sells, who had previously worked for the chewing gum business but had become assistant general manager of the Chicago Cubs. On February 17, 1943, they issued a press release announcing the creation of the All-American Girls Softball League. Their plan was to recruit players from the women's softball teams that had been established all over the country. At the beginning, Jim Hamilton was the lead talent scout in the U.S., and Johannes Gotzelig, known as Johnny, headed up recruitment in Canada.
1: But Wrigley also wanted to make the game a little closer to what spectators might expect from a baseball game. So they worked out a rule set that had elements of both baseball and softball. Like softball, it used a larger ball and an underhanded pitching style, but like baseball, the teams had nine players per side rather than softball's ten. The playing field would also have a longer pitching distance and running path than softball did, but it was still shorter than what was being used in baseball. Players in this game would also be allowed to steal bases, something that was not allowed in softball. These changes caused some controversy about exactly what sport was being played out there on the field, and the league changed its name to the All-American Girls Baseball League partway through the 1943 season. As
0: recruiters visited softball teams to look for players, hundreds of women and girls expressed interest in playing professionally. About 280 were invited to the final tryouts, and 60 players from the U.S. and Canada were ultimately selected to play in the 1943 season. Some of these young women were as young as 15, although most of them were between 18 and 22. As was the case with Major League Baseball at the time, the newly established Women's League excluded black players.
1: These players were arranged into four teams of 15 players each, the Rockford Peaches of Illinois, the South Bend Blue Sox of Indiana, and the Racine Bells in the Kenosha Comets of Wisconsin. Each of these was not far away from a much larger major city. They were also close enough together to allow the teams to travel from one city to the next for games while still conserving fuel and rubber during wartime rationing.
0: The league's setup was significantly different from Major League Baseball or most other leagues at the time. The league itself was a nonprofit organization with Philip Wrigley, Paul Harvey, and Branch Rickey as trustees. Much of the initial funding came from Wrigley himself. He spent about $250,000 getting the whole project started, and he contributed to the team's maintenance costs, especially in the first year
1: the players' contracts were also centrally owned by the league rather than being owned by one of the four teams. This meant that the players' pay was set by the league. There were no bidding wars with teams trying to entice the best players to sign on with them. That first year, the players made between $45 and $85 a week. That does not sound like much, but it is significantly more than most of them had been making in agricultural or factory work, or maybe playing in a paying softball league, players in the league were prohibited from doing any other work during the season. The centrally-owned
0: player contracts also meant that the league had the right to trade players from one team to another. One of the league's goals was for all the games to be as evenly matched and exciting to watch as possible. So player trades happened throughout the season as they tried to keep this balance.
1: Each team had a manager who also acted as a coach. These were typically men who had experience in major league or minor league baseball. Every team also had a business manager as well as a chaperone who was a woman and was a paid part of the staff. During the league's history, most of the chaperones had some experience in working with women's athletic teams.
0: The chaperones were responsible for making housing arrangements for the team, handling money, and approving any housing and dining accommodations that the team was going to use. In some ways, they were a little like athletic trainers as well, being trained in first aid and responsible for the team's first aid kit and the treatment of injuries. They were also ultimately responsible for the players' conduct, behavior, and appearance.
1: That last point was a lot. Most of the players came from working class and agricultural communities that didn't really regard women's participation in softball as unusual in any way. A lot of them had been playing on teams that had been organized by their employers, with that involvement being seen as pretty normal and fun. But that wasn't necessarily true among the middle class, which was a big part of the audience that the league was hoping to attract. The idea that women were playing baseball, which was considered to be a game for men, also raised some suspicions about the players. A common stereotype was that women athletes were lesbians. That's a stereotype that still exists today, but without nearly the level of stigma that was attached to it in the 1940s.
0: So the league went to great lengths to reinforce the idea that these players weren't just women, they were ladies. Specifically, patriotic, wholesome, middle-class, heterosexual ladies. Outwardly, the league described all its rules and training about things like beauty and conduct as a service, teaching working-class girls to be middle-class ladies, which, of course, suggested that to be middle-class was better than to be working class. And on top of that, a lot of the rules and standards in place were also meant to reduce suspicions of lesbianism.
1: This included the players' uniforms. These were one-piece, pastel-colored, tunic-like garments with a flared skirt, which were worn with satin shorts and knee socks. They were designed by Wrigley's wife, Ada, along with poster artist Otis Shepard and softball player Ann Harnett. They were also patterned after women's figure skating and tennis attire. These uniforms were meant to set the players apart from the barnstorming bloomer girls that we referenced earlier and to reinforce the idea that the players on the field were feminine women. These skirts did not really do much to protect the players' legs from scrapes and other injuries, but the players were also expected to look pristine at all times and not really have any visible injuries. Perfectly prim. Athletic lady. (laughs) It's it's the whole kind of convoluted tangle. Yeah.
0: Uh, The specific rules varied over the league's history, but the general idea of players being the right kind of woman was part of it throughout. Each player was issued a guide for all American girls how to look better, feel better, be more popular. In the 1943 season, Helena Rubinstein's Beauty Salon taught charm and beauty lessons for the players. That included hygiene, personal appearance, etiquette, and things like how to gracefully get in and out of a car or go up and down stairs. The Ruth Tiffany School provided these lessons the next year. Formal charm lessons ended after that point, but a focus on appropriate feminine behavior continued.
1: Players were also issued a beauty kit that they were expected to keep stock. It included cleansing cream, lipstick, rouge, deodorant, astringent, face powder, hand lotion, and hair remover. They were required to be attractive and presentable at all times, and they had to wear a dress or a skirt anytime they were seen in public. Most of the players wore trousers on the bus for the sake of comfort, especially during nighttime road trips between games, but kept a skirt with them to change into if they stopped for something like a restroom break or a meal. Some of the other
0: rules from the player's code of conduct... No boyish bobbed hair, no smoking, no drinking alcohol, and no social engagements unless they were approved by a chaperone. Lipstick was mandatory at all times. And there were also more mundane rules about things like punctuality.
1: The player's code of conduct specified a $5 fine for the first offense, a $10 fine for the second offense, and suspension for the third. But there were players that faced harsher penalties— Josephine D'Angelo, known as JoJo, was cut from the Blue Sox in her second year from the team after she got a bobbed haircut that was described as too short and butchy. In some accounts, Frida and Olympia Savona, who were star players from the New Orleans Jacks Brewing Company softball team, were passed over for the All-American Girls League because of their masculine appearance There were definitely some news stories that made disparaging comments about the Savona's appearance, but Frida wrote to a reporter to say this had nothing to do with why she was not in the league. She said she was just happier and better paid where she was.
0: Fraternizing with members of other teams was also forbidden within the league. The league framed this as a way to keep the level of competitiveness high, but many of the players interpreted it as a way to discourage romantic relationships between them.
1: So that's kind of an overview of what the league was like when spring training started at its first season on May 17th of 1943. That happened in Chicago. The first pitch of the season was thrown on May 30th of 1943.
0: And we'll talk about how things grew and evolved from there after we first have a little sponsor break
1: the all-american girls baseball league's first season included sporting events as well as wartime patriotism teams made appearances at recruitment drives and fundraisers and they visited wounded soldiers that had returned stateside On July 1st, they held an all-star game against a team from the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps, which was played under the lights at Wrigley Field. This event was part of a recruitment drive held free of charge and at night so that working women could attend. Some of the league's patriotism was more symbolic, like having the two teams that were going to be competing lined up in a V for victory during the national anthem at the beginning of every game.
0: The 1943 season ended with a five-game championship series in which the Racine Bells defeated the Kenosha Comets. More than 175,000 fans attended games in that first season. Then in 1944, the league expanded to six teams. Another competing league was founded that same year, the National Girls Baseball League, established in Chicago. This league continued until 1954, although its history and activities aren't nearly as well documented as the All-American Girls League.
1: At the end of the 1944 season, Philip Wrigley sold the league to Arthur Mayerhoff for $10,000, which was a fraction of what he had put into getting it started and operating it in those first two seasons. It had become clear that the sport of men's baseball was not in any kind of actual peril from the war, but apart from that, Wrigley was just not really interested in being so heavily involved in the league anymore. Meyerhoff had also been a big part of the league since its inception, and Wrigley was confident that he would maintain the same standards that Wrigley had established in terms of quality and entertainment.
0: The biggest change at this point was that the league went from being a nonprofit to a for-profit entity. Otherwise, the players' contracts were still centrally owned, and each team continued to have paid managers and chaperones. Meyerhoff put a big focus on marketing and promoting the league. He also organized postseason exhibition tours to Cuba and South America, mainly to countries where Wrigley chewing gum had a presence thanks to the rubber and chickle industries.
1: Over time, the style of play within the league continued to shift and become more and more like men's baseball, The ball gradually got smaller and harder. Pitching and infield distances got longer. Sidearm pitching was introduced in 1946 and overhand pitching in 1948. Some players that had been recruited from softball teams had a little trouble adjusting to these changes, and Meyerhoff established a junior league and farm teams to cultivate new talent.
0: Although the All-American Girls Baseball League had started out with the idea of being a substitution for men's baseball during World War II, its popularity really peaked after the war ended in 1945. In 1946, a July 4th doubleheader in South Bend, Indiana, drew a crowd of between 10,000 and 20,000 people. Attendance peaked in 1948, with nearly a million fans in attendance. That year, the league had 10 teams from Rockford, Peoria, Chicago, and Springfield, Illinois, Racine in Kenosha, Wisconsin, South Bend in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Grand Rapids in Muskegon, Michigan. Most of the team names were distinctly feminine, including the Peaches, Chicks, Millerettes, Daisies, Lassies, Colleen's, Sally's, and Bell's.
1: Although the league grew between 1945 and 1948, it also faced some struggles in those years. The idea of women playing baseball had drawn suspicion since the beginning, but that increased when there was no longer a wartime patriotic need for women to take up what was seen as men's work. Individual teams also folded for various reasons from time to time, and then that put a strain on the rest of the league as it tried to absorb those other players.
0: After a while, friction started to develop between individual teams and Meyerhoff's management company. While the league owned the players' contracts, the teams all had their own owners, who started to object to the requirement to send some of their ticket revenues back to Meyerhoff. Meyerhoff was putting most of the proceeds back into the league, but even so, a perception grew that Meyerhoff was making money off of the team's work.
1: As attendance started to fall off in 1948, Meyerhoff embarked on some ambitious plans to try to revive the league. This included an attempt to start an international women's baseball league, which would play in Florida, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, and Cuba during the winter and early spring. Although an international league was formed very briefly, it never really got off the ground.
0: At the end of the 1950 season, the teams bought out Meyerhoff and became self-governing and decentralized. The league's name had been through slight tweaks through the years, and at this point, it became the American Girls Baseball League, or AGBL, although most people still use the word all. At this point, players started contracting with teams for their rates rather than the league, which increased pay disparities as teams tried to attract and keep the best players.
1: The only paid position in the league at this point was the commissioner, and without a central league organization that was promoting and marketing the games, attendance continued to drop. The league also faced increased competition from other forms of entertainment in the 50s, including televised men's baseball games.
0: The American Girls Baseball League dissolved in 1954. During its history, about 600 women from the United States, Canada, and Cuba had played for teams in 14 Midwestern cities. During baseball season, they played six or seven games a week, with doubleheaders on Sundays and holidays, sleeping on buses overnight as they traveled from one city to the next. This was a grueling schedule, which may be one reason why about a quarter of the players only played for one season or less.
1: Although Major League Baseball had started to desegregate in the late 1940s, and President Harry Truman issued an executive order to desegregate the armed forces in 1948, the All-American Girls Baseball League was segregated throughout its history. Although two Black women practiced with the South Bend Blue Sox in 1951, neither of them wound up signing a contract with the league. However, there were
0: three Black women who played on men's teams in the Negro Leagues in the 1950s. Mamie Peanut Johnson, Connie Morgan, and Marcenia Lyle, who used the name Tony Stone professionally. All three started with the Indianapolis Clowns. Tony Stone replaced Hank Aaron there, and her contract was sold to the Kansas City Monarchs before the 1954 season. There are reports that Tony Stone tried out for the All-American Girls League as well, but those are not concretely documented.
1: After the All-American Girls League was dissolved, many of the players adopted what's been described as a self-imposed silence. Most of them did not really talk about their time playing professional baseball, even among their families, Reasons why are not entirely clear, but stigma may have been one factor. According to one survey that was conducted in the 90s, about 20% of players reported facing discrimination because of their history as an athlete.
0: However, many used the money that they'd earned playing baseball to go to college or to start a career, with some attending college and graduate school during the offseason. One researcher who interviewed players later in their life found that about 35% had graduated from college, compared to less than 10% of women in the general population in the same era. This has been described as a precursor to Title IX's effects on women's college enrollment, giving women educational opportunities that they didn't have access to otherwise.
1: When the Women's Liberation Movement started in the 1960s and 70s, historians and other researchers started unearthing the league's history, and the players started reconnecting with each other and documenting their own history at the same time. In the late 70s, Dorothy Kamny Kamenshek and Marge Wenzel and June Pepys all met up and started talking about organizing a reunion— In October of 1980, Peppa sent a letter to the few players whose addresses she had been able to find and started trying to track people down. By January of 1981, this had morphed into a newsletter, which grew from a handful of addresses to more than a hundred within a month. This also coalesced into a players association that still exists today. The first of many reunions was held in Chicago
0: in 1982, and the newsletter became part of an effort to establish a league archive and to get some kind of recognition in the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. It was during this process that the league's name became formally finalized as the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League.
1: The players' efforts for recognition came to fruition on November 5th of 1988 with the formal unveiling of a permanent women in baseball exhibit at the Baseball Hall of Fame. The League's players had been an active part in this exhibit's creation, including donating their photographs, uniforms, equipment, and memorabilia. A League archive was established at the Northern Indiana Historical Society Museum, now called the History Museum in South Bend, Indiana. There was also an exhibition through the Smithsonian.
0: The League was also the subject of a short documentary called A League of Their Own that aired nationally on public television on September 30th, 1987. And of course, there's the 1992 feature film directed by Penny Marshall, which was a blockbuster and was actually when many people first heard about women's baseball.
1: Another documentary tells the story of Terry Donahue and Pat Henschel. Donahue was recruited from Saskatchewan, Canada, and played for the Peoria Red Wings for four seasons. After these two women met, in between seasons, Henschel left her life in Canada behind to join Donahue in the United States— Although the two of them described themselves at the time as cousins and roommates, they were really a couple, and the documentary tells the story of their lives together. The film is called A Secret Love. It was supposed to premiere at South by Southwest in March of 2020, but of course, because of the pandemic, South by Southwest has been canceled. So I'm not sure what the status of the film's debut is at this point, but at some point, I think it might come to Netflix because there is a page for it in the Netflix Media Center exciting uh henschel is also one of the people Brittany
0: de la creta interviewed when reporting her article the hidden queer history behind a league of their own at that point both donahue and henschel were still living but donahue died in 2019 uh at that time she and henschel had been together for 71 years
1: The All-American Girls Professional Baseball League's website for the Player Association also has a wealth of information on the individual players, including their photos, their team histories, their biographies, and for those who are no longer living, many of their uh, obituaries are there as well. It is really a ton. If you want to go read about some women baseball players, lots and lots to look at there. Do you have listener mail to close this one out? I sure do. This is from Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, Dear Tracy and Holly, I've been a listener for several years and yours is my favorite podcast. I saw your live show in D.C. last year. I finally have a reason to write. My ears perked up when I heard you mention Alexandria, Virginia, and... specifically the Kate Waller Barrett library in your recent six impossible episodes. Kate Waller Barrett is the namesake for my Alexandria chapter of the daughters of the American revolution. And you might be interested in knowing more about her. You can find a biography of her and uh, provided a link In summary, Kate Waller Barrett was an influential public figure in the late 19th and early 20th century. She advocated for women's political and social rights, for compassionate care for unmarried mothers and their children, for education, and for the interests of military veterans. Her personal style merged progressive feminism and traditional femininity, and she had a unique ability to speak unpopular truths to both the public and the powerful and to move them to her viewpoint. She was a medical doctor and was the chief executive of several national organizations, including the National Florence Crittenden Mission, the National Council of Women, and the American Legion Auxiliary. If she interests you as a podcast subject, I can point you to some research. I hadn't known about the Alexandria Library sit-in. Coincidentally, I was driving through Old Town Alexandria today, and at the corner of Washington Street and Queen Street, I spied a historic marker about the sit-in. I pulled over and snapped this picture. The marker is around the corner from the library so the building in the background is not it the text reads on 21 august 1939 five young african-american men applied for library cards at the new alexandria library to protest its whites only policy after being denied william evans edward gaddis morris murray clarence strange and otto l tucker each selected a book from the shelves sat down and read quietly the men were arrested and charged with disorderly conduct despite their polite demeanor Local attorney Samuel W. Tucker, who helped plan the protest, represented them in court. The judge never issued a ruling. In 1940, Alexandria opened the Robert Robinson Library for African Americans. Desegregation of the library system began by 1959. Thank you for educating me about my own local history. I do try to read historical markers, but that is not one I remember reading before. Uh, Elizabeth continues on with a topic suggestion and says keep up the great podcast gals and then says my favorite part of each episode is when one of you says do you have listener mail and the other heartily replies i do i like this part of the episode too elizabeth uh so thank you so much elizabeth for this email for sending the picture of the historical marker. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcasts at iHeartRadio.com and we're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Pinterest, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, anywhere else you get your podcast.